This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When I watch TV, many of the shows are about everyday relatable people in everyday relatable situations and settings. Sometimes that nearness to ordinary life can even feel a little eerie. Years ago, when I was watching Seinfeld, I remember seeing Jerry wearing the same exact sweater my dad used to own. This fictionalized yet familiar depiction of real life has become so popular in modern entertainment that it's easy to forget that this is actually a highly stylized approach that at one time shocked audiences. A style called realism. Its origins can be traced back to a 19th century play by Henrik Ibsen called A Doll's House. It's considered uh, widely among theater scholars to be a landmark text in the history of the development of theater in particularly in European and uh, co colonial European cultures. My name is Derek Miller. I am the John L. Loeb Associate Professor of the Humanities at Harvard University. I teach in the English department and also courses in theater, dance, and media. This play is by no means a fairy tale. It shows real, relatable characters going through very real struggles and how they handle them. Before this real depiction of life, stories were often more black and white. There was a very clear struggle of good versus evil. But real life is more complicated than that. Ibsen's characters are constantly trying to navigate this complexity, just like all of us. I think Ibsen, and studying Ibsen and talking about Ibsen helps me think a little more carefully and slowly about what kind of a moral life I'm leading. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Derek Miller to discuss Henrik Ibsen's play, A Doll's House. Henrik Ibsen was born in Norway in 1828. He began writing at age 15. When he was 18, he briefly attended university in what is today Oslo, but left to focus on writing. He starts out in the arts by running a rural theater uh, and then eventually runs the theater in the capital, then Christiania, um, before he leaves the country. He finds the sort of theatrical culture there too stultifying. Um, and he ends up traveling around Europe, including, I think, in Germany and Italy. Uh, and he writes a lot of plays. So he has very practical experience in the theater. He's a man of the theater. He's produced a lot of the popular European dramas of the 19th century. Ibsen writes his first plays in the heroic, romantic style, which was very popular in 19th century European theater. Some common themes in these early works include tales about Vikings and old historical and mythological Norwegian themes. Starting in 1877, he shifts and he starts writing uh, prose dramas. The, the later plays are all in prose. They're in domestic settings and they're focused on bourgeois life. And the questions they ask are about how we live now. And the we he's addressing are his peers, his middle-class, educated, theater-going audience in Norway and Denmark and Copenhagen, which has a very close relationship uh, economically and politically, as well as artistically with uh, Norway. And uh, so his plays are first published in Copenhagen, and he's writing in a Norwegian-infused Danish dialect. Um, but... Uh, 
he's speaking directly to this audience rather than writing in this more heroic register. Now, he's not the first person to do this uh, in any European art. French novelists, for instance, are really establishing this approach um, and have been for, for decades. Um, he's not the first dramatist to do it. But he's the person who does it in a way that sort of synthesizes a bunch of different strands in political thought and philosophy and in uh, this approach to theater making that really transform going forward how people think about what drama is and what it can do. A Doll's House premiered at the Royal Theater in Copenhagen, Denmark in December of 1879. The play is about Nora and Torvald Helmar. So they're married and they're on the verge of a new phase of the, the life. It's Christmas Eve, actually. And he's about to start his job as a bank manager and everything's about to change for them. They're going to come into a real solid salary after years of scrimping and saving. However, many years ago, Nora forged a document to secure a loan and she needed the money to help save Torvald's life. And this loan came from this disreputable man, Krogstad, who wants Nora's help to get a job at the bank Torvald's about to run. And so he basically is blackmailing her. I'm gonna expose that you had this forged note, et cetera. So she's caught in this trap. But the, the gist of the play and part of the way the play works is Nora knows that Torvald will fix it all. He will take the blame, he will stand up for her and all will be right in the world because he is a heroic individual and she is just a poor depraved woman. Krogstad eventually tears up the forged note. So the plot is actually resolved in this way that involves this other character. And But in the meantime, Torvald, far from standing up for Nora, is appalled by her, disgusted, and declares their whole life, life ruined and that he can never trust her again. And this causes Nora to understand that her belief in what Torvald was, who Torvald was to her, and what their marriage was, was based on nothing but a set of ideals that she had been fed since childhood. And so the last part of the play is this amazing conversation between the two of them, in which Nora tries to articulate how little she understands of who she is and what the world is, and how she can never learn any of those things as long as she's with Torvald. And at the end of the play, she leaves him and their two children, excuse me, their three children, and slams the door as she walks out at the end of the play. The last sound of the play is the door slamming. And it's shocking to end a play with a sound effect like this. Plays end with a tableau with all the characters on stage, the good ones standing triumphant, the bad ones brought to their knees or, or laid low in some other fashion under arrest. Um, but no, in Ibsen's drama, you end the play with this note of confusion and uncertainty and Torvald stands up in hope. The, the one thing, the miracle, and bam, the door slams. And that's the end of the play. It's a chilling, startling moment. Um, and so many dramatists take up this, this style where they're really using all the pieces of theater to tell their story um, and not just relying on these old visual modes of tableau, etc. Along with using new tools, Ibsen was writing for and about a new demographic. Uh, this is starting to get to an educated class. They're not um, factory workers, right? They're not manual laborers. They have a certain degree of education. And so uh, the characters in Ibsen's plays are, for example, Torvald Helmer in A Doll's House is going to become the manager of a bank. 
um, and their bookkeepers and accountants and architects, the master builder, he's an architect. Um, they uh, are doctors. They are professionals of some kind, whether they're in a professional guild or not, they're working a profession. They have a certain amount of learning. They're sort of knowledge workers, essentially. Um, they live mostly in cities and towns, so we're not looking as much at rural um, dramas here. They live in, they have servants who help them with their children and help keep the house clean. They have, pay each other calls and visits. Um, they're not royalty. They're not elevated in any way. But in some way, they make their life, their livings through knowledge and through the manipulation of money. And so those are really some two of the great themes of Ibsen's writing are about what we know and how we come to know it and also money, how we live and how we come to acquire money and our relationship to money. Ibsen wasn't the only playwright to focus on this new bourgeois middle class, but most maintained the heroic and romantic themes that were popular in 19th century European theater. You think about melodramas from the 19th century, often depicting middle class individuals, essentially, um, as well as poverty. But their uh, mode of address is still fundamentally Manichaean. They're speaking in terms of good and evil. They're thinking about noble, heroic actions and bad actions. They're morally very black and white. Ibsen, on the other hand, felt like this binary heroic struggle between good and evil was disconnected to reality. He couldn't identify with it. In real life, the lines between good and evil, right and wrong, aren't always clear. People live in the middle, right? We're, we, we want to do right. We want to think of ourselves as doing right and being right and being good. And yet we all make so many choices and compromises um, that are ethically transparently wrong, um, but we justify them to ourselves. That's the space that Ibsen's characters live in. And it's a very modern space. Uh, it has to do with the complexity of the world. It has to do with complexity of class. It has to do with complexity of gender, etc. 19th century Europe was a place of change. The decline of church authority, the rise of democracy, and the expansion of education all led to social and cultural changes that empowered individuals. But these changes came with new challenges, complexities, and uncertainties. Ibsen wanted to give the new middle class something they could relate to. By pivoting from the heroic story structure and the fight between good and evil, Ibsen depicted life in all of its complications and ambiguities in a new genre called realism. My students, when they encounter this play in the class, I have to remind them that the style they're used to watching on television, and you can pick almost any television show and it'll, it'll be realist in some essential way, um, the style they're used to seeing, if you think about American drama in some sort of vague sense, um, uh, the style that we, to which we are so accustomed has come to seem like a non-style. Like, of course, a sitcom is set in a living room with a couch and there's also a kitchen set and you've got, you see the family at home and their interaction with their neighbors and their employers, etc. Of course, that is the stuff of drama. It's natural, it's non-stylized. But of course, that is a style. It's a very conscious style. And even in the situation comedy, it's a style that's related in part to the development of realism. So realism is showing, as the writer Bernard Shaw defined it, ourselves in our own situations. We're talking about domestic situations. So you're seeing your furniture on stage. If you go to an Ibsen play and you're, it's 1879 and you're watching A Doll's House, you should be sitting in that audience and look on the stage and say, 
I own that chair. That's really the effect that the set has supposed to have. Um, the domestic middle class, uh, they're speaking in a language that is vernacular. It's prose dialogue. It's not elevated. Now, of course, there's a lot of poetry to Ibsen's language, and it can seem very stilted to contemporary readers, even those who understand some of the historical linguistic things he's doing. Um, but nonetheless, a dialogue that is trying to capture something more akin to normal speech, in which characters don't speechify, there are no asides, right? They don't turn to the audience and say, aha, I have him there, right? They don't do that. They speak to each other, and they try to get each other to do what they want. Um, these are quotidian struggles and quotidian plots. So you can see this is a very sort of daily life struggle kind of thing. These aren't international conflicts. No army is about to burst across the sea into the room. And another thing is the way this all works is that everything is contributing to meaning. It's not just about style and effect. Um, that uh, props are a wonderful example of this in Ibsen's plays. So Nora likes to sneak um, macarons. She likes to, to eat, eat the candies and uh, the sweets. And uh, she gets chided for this by Torvald, her husband. And of course, it's, it's a great, it's, it's not just um, a little joke on her. It's a device to illuminate the dynamic of their relationship, how he controls her, how she has secrets that she keeps from him and sneaks these other things, how she sort of pursues this joy in life that he seems a little averse to. It's a, it's a wonderful prop to show that dynamic. It's very different from the way, for example, stage props work in earlier dramas. So you've got this uh, real change in style. Now, again, it looks to us like a non-style. It looks to us like neutral. Uh, realism feels like a non-style, but in fact, it's a heavily stylized form, and Ibsen is one of the masters of it. So realism does not itself look at any other class except the middle class? Realism doesn't imply a particular political point of view, and often, therefore, simply takes on the middle class as its default. That is to say, it's the theater-going audience itself, um, and to the extent that middle classes, the middle classes and the educated classes are generally the consumers of this written drama, uh, or seen as the consumers for it's marketed to them. So um, realism doesn't imply anything. You can write conservative realist drama, as plenty of writers did and have done. It's not a particularly difficult thing to do. Um, but realism has also been an excellent vehicle for showing corners of life that have been excluded, marginalized, uh, and otherwise harmed. And many have argued that realism is essentially conservative because it doesn't show you life as it could be. It just shows you life as it is, and therefore is some way static or, or withholding. And what's interesting is I could imagine a critique of that coming from the left and the right, that certain tradition-minded people might say, we ought to have art that ennobles us, that inspires us, that shows us to a better you know, maybe character or virtue or spirit. Um, and at the same time, you know, maybe social justice minded people might say, yeah, like, don't make us care about bourgeois families. You know, they're fine. Like, what about the poor? Absolutely. No, absolutely. That's absolutely right. And Ibsen in particular uh, underwent the former critique uh, during his lifetime. A doll's house very famously ends with Nora leaving her husband Torvald. Um, and this was so appalling to some of the early actresses who performed the role in Germany that they refused to play the role as, as it was written. And Ibsen himself wrote an alternate ending in which she stays with Torvald at the end of the play. And that was the one that was performed a lot in Germany in the early years. When it was first performed in England, it was entirely rewritten by this um, very con rather conservative playwright, Henry Arthur Jones, very conservative playwright, Henry Arthur Jones, um, and another writer whose name I forget. And Jones basically takes 
the structure, the narrative form of A Doll's House and completely rewrites it so that Torvald does the heroic thing and rescues his wife and everyone lives happily ever after. So there were a lot of people who said, we need, I, you know, we need heroism, we need ideals, we need high moral thoughts. The wonderful thing about Ibsen and why, one of the reasons I like him so much as a writer is because he saw the, the sort of left reaction that embraced his calls to reality, and he writes plays that think very carefully about what the function of ideals are. Ibsen has real questions about whether or not we can live in a world entirely without ideals, too. One of the conflicts in A Doll's House is the clash between the heroic, idealized version of reality of Ibsen's predecessors and the complicated version of this new brand of drama. Nora seems to think she's living in a heroic comedy, and finds out, in fact, that she's living in a domestic tragedy. Um, and that's her big come down, right? Is that she thinks the ideals of the 19th century theater are her life, and they're not. Her husband's not going to step in and, and take the forgery on himself and sacrifice himself for her. And what was the reaction of the public? It was hugely popular. It was reprinted very, very quickly. It was translated across Europe very, very quickly. Um, there's a wonderful recent scholarship, actually, in digital humanities-based research on the proliferation of a doll's house around the globe. Um, it's performed by uh, famous actresses all over the world. Um, early on, for example, the first American performance is by Helen Majeska, um, one of the great 19th century divas. Um, it's it's just a huge hit. Now, it has its trouble finding its way into some societies. For example, the British have stage censorship through 1968. And so it's not seen on British stages in the commercial theater system that they have. And really, the play becomes very closely tied, as with Ibsen's other work, too, to the independent theater mu movement that springs up throughout Europe. So it's one of, he's one of the writers who gets closely associated with a move away from purely commercial production or the purely royal aristocratic government patronage and towards a model that is about private patronage, the audience patronage, the subscription model that we're now familiar in the United States with something like the regional nonprofits. Um, the impact that Ibsen's work had, not just in the theater, but intellectually. People read Ibsen, talked about Ibsen in the papers. There were Ibsen wars in the British papers about performing his work there. Um, this was work that people cared deeply about because they understood that it meant something different that he was imagining and showing people a new world in a way that compelled audiences. Um, and that threatened a lot of people. That threatened a conservative class that wasn't interested in women's liberation, that wasn't interested in, you know, confessing to our sins and realizing that we all behave immorally sometimes. It wasn't interested in any of that. It wanted to uphold, as you said, church and state. Uh, and Ibsen wasn't willing to, to let go of um, the desire to see his characters struggle through their daily choices. So was the heat and light uh, that was came from this play, how much of it would you attribute to its its um, discussion of women's lives and, and roles and, and kind of feminist um, engagement in general? The idea that this middle class woman who seems to be generally a good person, upstanding person throughout the play would decide to leave her children and her husband because she feels that she doesn't understand who she is or what her place in the world is, was abhorrent to huge swaths of society. And we live in a society, in my view, that is so, so steeped in misogyny uh, and distrust of women and for women's roles 
Um, so much of the current uh, economic crisis has meant that care returns to being primarily uh, women's work in terms of child care. Um, and these decisions aren't decisions for women. They are made for them by society. And Ibsen points that out so clearly in this play. So the play really... Uh, was lots of different kinds of rejection throughout Europe, as we said, these rewrites of various kinds. Um, really a sense that uh, this clear critique of passive femininity and chivalrous masculinity hit at a deep fundamental structure of European and American societies at the time. And it continues to be a really deep structure. And I think it's part of the reason the play continues to have so much resonance in performance. Um, it spurred a lot of women to action. Um, it, most famously, Elizabeth Robbins, uh, an American actress who became involved with the play in the United Kingdom and with Ibsen's works, goes on to be an important part of the suffrage movement, um, an important advocate for women's rights, and writes a wonderful Ibsenite play in, of her own called Vote for Women that has a spectacular second act set at a political rally in uh, the middle of London in which the characters literally stand up on stage and give speeches about why women should have the right to vote and they get heckled by the actors on other actors on stage. It's a remarkable piece of writing, a very Ibsenite play. Um, and so, so much of uh, this, you know, the suffrage movement gets a little boost from, from this play in this sort of tangential ways. So he... He signals and helps to create a new realism in theater and beyond. How does realism change theater in in Europe uh, going forward? Ibsen's impact on realism is, uh, and the theater is huge. Um, realism becomes a mode for a certain kind of literary writing. Realism then marks a style that's good to write in and to read in. And so writers... Playwrights start writing again to be read in a different way, not just performed or performed by amateurs in their homes, but also to be read by serious thinkers. So Ibsen plays a huge role in that. He plays a huge part, and the plays play a huge role in the independent theater movement in Europe. This is the Théâtre Libre of André Antoine. This is the Freibühne of uh, Otto Brahm. This is the uh, Independent Theater Society of J.T. Grine in the United Kingdom. And then eventually in the 19-teens, the Little Theater Movement in the United States. And so many writers associated with these movements pick up on Ibsenite styles of writing. They also pick up on more expressionist forms and uh, various kinds of symbolisms. Um, but Ibsen rec represents sort of one strand of, of theatrical style. Ibsen's influence can also be traced to the Stanislavski method, also known as method acting. This approach was very popular with 20th century film actors. Many actors in the United States studied the Stanislavski method, which trains actors to take on the role of their characters, not just while they're on stage or screen, but in their regular life too. They become their characters for the duration of the role. This method was originally developed in part to get inside the characters in Ibsen's plays. Ibsen's characters have such psychological complexity and depth. You look at a 19th century melodrama and you can literally just learn your lines and cues and go on and act your way through the play not having read any other piece of it because all of it was so formulaic and so clearly cut. There's never any characterization that's not clear. You're the tragic heroine. You know what to do. Go ahead, faint. Um, you, you know your cue to faint. Um, Ibsen doesn't write plays like that. Ibsen writes plays where you have to read what the other characters say about you to know what your character is like. This sounds 
like an obvious kind of thing. Isn't that what, what how plays work? It's not. It's not before in the most of the 19th century, before Ibsen starts doing it very seriously, Ibsen and others. Um, so this is a huge change in, in a lot of approaches to acting, the development of what we might call psychological acting styles. Um, it's a huge change in design. So a lot of design becomes oriented on this realist work rather than um, sort of flatter, um, uh, excuse me, flatter, just painted drops. Um, now you need, you need a couch. You need three dimensions to the stage with a couch and a chair for the other person to sit on. Um, so the theater changes uh, in those ways. Um, uh, the acting styles change and the, the economics of it change, right? So this isn't work that can be produced as easily in commercial settings, at least in some countries. And so these not what we would now call not-for-profit theaters develop in uh, other countries to support and stage these plays and they develop a model for subscriptions. So it's a huge influence on theater throughout Europe and down to the present day. So you not only have writers like Chekhov and Ibsen who are rough contemporary, excuse me, Chekhov and Shaw, who's a, a junior contemporary of his, uh, and Hauptmann and Zola, but then even playwrights such as um, Eugene O'Neill, who's slightly later, O'Neill has a huge expressionist phase, and then his later plays get very Ibsenite in terms of characters just sitting on tage, stage talking psychology, wondering about their choices in life. Um, Arthur Miller is a huge Ibsenite. So Death of a Salesman is, has many expressionist elements. There's a lot of expressionism in Miller's writing. It remains, a def, as I said, a default style for so much of our con, the um, performances that we consume, right? We consume more performances in televisual media now than we do in live uh, form. Um, but even so, uh, our assumptions about reality um, and how and staging reality and the function of staging reality have, have remained pretty stable since the late 19th century. But no matter how close to reality it gets, realism will never fully be able to replicate real life. The more you try to get it right, the harder it is to do. That's, of course, one of the great stories about reality television, too, right? How fake everything on reality television is. Um, or I have a seven-year-old son, and he was asking about um, the pancakes on the pancake box. Why do they look so good? And my wife's explaining, well, first they make some pancakes and then they fill them with cardboard and then they pour some, you know, fake shiny stuff on top of it and they get something that looks like butter and they paint that and then they Photoshop the whole picture, right? I mean, reproducing reality is a huge amount of work because reality is not reproducible. Um, and so the way we relate to the real is so striking. The other thing about realism that's so amazing is that, and this is very tied to bourgeois life, is that realism gets the way in which we perform our lives for each other. So much of our life, particularly of our consumption of objects, but also the way we speak with each other, the jobs that we undertake, our political allegiances, are ways to signal to each other our alliances and our community, and also our own status. Ibsen gets that that's the essence of bourgeois life. It's not just having these things, it's using them to the end of asserting your own place in the world. And because he gets that, the works feel incredibly unstable. That is to say, as you're watching Nora and Torvald live in their house with that couch that you looked at that couch and I think we own that chair and that wallpaper is made at that store down the street. As you see those things, you recognize the theatricality of your own life. And you become unsettled by the recognition that so much of your own life is you putting on a play for your friends 
and your neighbors and your peers at work to show them that you are who you are. Um, and that's deeply unsettling about realism, deeply unsettling. And would you say that social media is also highlighting that performative aspect of our lives? Oh, absolutely. Social media is so much about a performative life. Um, uh, food photos, of course, but also lifestyle, blogging, Instagram things. Um, uh, it's not to say that nothing's real. I, I do think there are real things in the world, um, but that our relationship to the real things in the world is constructed by so much, many richly entangled contexts. Uh, and so we have to work hard to maintain control over the terms under which we encounter the real. When Ibsen sat down to write A Doll's House, he wanted to capture the fact that in modern life, we live not in black and white, but in many shades of gray. His play holds up a mirror to audiences so we can see our lives as they are. But he also revealed how performative our everyday lives actually are. By opening this door to realism, he blurred the lines between what is real life and what is just an act. Writ Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of Lit Hub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what others are saying. You can also find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.